to them to remain faithful in the midst of the trials and temptations. And if they do, Jesus says, that they will receive a crown of life, they will receive the bread of life, they will receive a white robe. All these are uh, symbolic of salvation at the end of the age when Christ raises people from the dead and sets up his kingdom. So now John comes to his second vision in chapter 4 and verse 1. And we have a shift in the focus. Look what it says. And after these things, after what things? After the vision of Christ and the seven letters, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So now the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And I believe the events that take place in chapters 4 and 5 are taking place simultaneously to the things that are taking place on earth. So what we have is in chapters 2 and 3, the circumstances the church is facing on earth. But what's happening during that same time up in heaven? Well, John's going to get a glimpse of that. So he sees a door that's opened in heaven. So from chapters 2 and 3, we get an earthly perspective of what's happening in the world. In chapters 4 and 5, we get a heavenly perspective. Does that make sense? So he says, I looked, and behold, a door was opened. Now, not only does he see something, he hears something. Look what he said. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. Now, this voice is not identified. We will discover that it's most likely the voice of, of God, but it's not identified it's described. Described like a trumpet. In other words, it's attention grabbing. So he gets, he comes out of his first vision and he falls into a second vision, and in this second vision he hears a voice. This is not a voice that he hears with his ears. Okay, this is a vision. Something you really need to understand when we're going through the book of Revelation. You cannot take these words literally. In a vision, you are having symbolic language. You're seeing pictures. A vision is sight. Things that you see, these are pictures. He's trying to interpret the pictures that he sees. He says, I heard a voice. Did he hear it with his ears in a vision? No. He didn't hear anything. If he's wide awake, guess what? He wouldn't have heard a word. But he hears it in the vision. A voice. And it grabs his attention. And the voice says, come up here and do it right now. Now, so this is what's going to happen. And he said, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, you know from that statement right there, based on what we've read the past several weeks, in chapters 2 and 3, that the church is going through trials and tribulations. In fact, the church is about to go through trials and tribulations. There's going to be a great persecution that comes upon the church. What's it going to be like? John says that in this vision, this voice said, I'm going to show you what it's going to be like. I'm going to show you the trials and tribulations, the persecutions that you're going to face. And then he says... In verse 2, immediately, I was in the Spirit. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. 
Now, how does he get up into heaven? Uh, he, guy, the, the voice said, come up here. How did he get up there? Did he go there physically? No, his feet were still planted on the Isle of Patmos, weren't they? Did his spirit separate from his body? Was it his spirit, his soul that went up there? Was it astral projection? Separation of soul and body? The, body? the Bible says the spirit, the body without the spirit. Does anybody know what it says in James? Dead. So that wasn't the case. How does he get up there? He gets up there the same way you go to places in your dreams. Or the same way you go to places when you're having a daydream. You have a daydream, and guess what? Your feet are planted right here in this classroom, but guess where you are? You're in Hawaii. <laughs> and this is a vision. He gets up there in the vision. Okay? You have to realize that. And when he gets up there in the vision, he says, Behold. That's the second behold, isn't it? There's a behold in verse 1. Behold, a door was open. He saw a door. Now he sees something else. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So, he sees a door, and now he sees a throne. This is very political language. You see a throne. This is very important that you understand this. Just as there is a throne sitting in the center of Rome with a man on it, Caesar, who claims ultimate authority over the world, so in heaven there's a throne and there's someone sitting on it. It's an established throne. Now, you'll never understand Revelation unless you understand these political uh, markers. So what we have is, from earthly perspective, chapters 2 and 3, Caesar is on a throne ruling the world. That's how things look. But from a heavenly perspective, someone else is on a throne ruling the world, and that's God. Okay? So once you start seeing this, you'll understand it. Okay? Now look what he says. And he who sat on the throne was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Here's a person on a throne that looks like a jasper stone and a sardius. This is why you can't take things real literally. Do I look like a stone? No, I don't look like a stone. Do you know anybody that looks like a jasper stone? Hey, that person looked like... You know, I saw a, some, in somebody's ring a jasper stone the other day, and I met this person when I went shopping. Look, looked just like a jasper stone. You see why you can't take things literally? So you're having to find the meaning behind the symbols. Does that make sense? So when he says a jasper stone, that is a stone, according to Revelation 21, that is crystal clear. Pure, translucent. And then he says, look like a, this person on the throne, look like a sardius stone or a red carnelian, which is like a ruby. So this person on the throne looks like a jasper stone, which is crystal clear, and like a red blood type stone. Now, what makes that significant is John sees this in a vision immediately to his, in his mind and immediately to the people who he's writing. Who is he writing to, by the way? 
seven churches. When they read this revelation, he says these two stones, immediately that's going to trigger something. Their mind is going to go back to the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus 28. And the first stone on the breastplate of the high priest was the jasper stone, and the, he had 12 stones, and the last stone was the sardius. The first stone and the last stone. The first and the last stone on the breastplate were these two stones. Each one of those stones was linked to a tribe in Israel. Just like every high school has a stone. My high school stone was an onyx. College had a different stone. Every birthday is linked to a stone. My birthday is July 11th. The stone is a ruby. If you're in the middle of early you know, October, maybe it's an oval. Whatever. So, each tribe had a stone. The stone for Reuben was a sardis, or a jasper. Now, Reuben was the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn. First tribe, firstborn. Reuben the firstborn. His stone was a jasper. The lastborn was Benjamin. And his stone was a sardis. Now, Reuben means, you know what his name means? Behold a son. Behold a son. If you were Jewish, you'd think of Reuben, you'd think of that stone, and you would say, Behold a son. Benjamin's name, represented by the last stone, is the son of my right hand. The son of my right hand. Now, why would that be significant to this this early church? Because is Jesus the first in the land? The God said, Behold my son? Is Jesus the one who sits at the right hand of God? Is he God's right hand man? Does he have all the authority that God has? You see, with those symbols comes meaning. And so you have to try to understand the meaning behind the symbols. And then that's not all, he says, and there was, in the middle of verse 3, a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of an emerald. <clears throat> now, a rainbow. What kind of a rainbow? Where was the rainbow? Around the throne. <clears throat> around the throne. And that's not all that was around the throne. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. Were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders. So we see, John sees somebody that's on the throne, and now he sees something that surrounds the throne. What does he see surrounding the throne? Two things. A rainbow and elders surrounding the throne, encircling the throne. So, what do we know about this rainbow? Well, the first thing you notice about this rainbow, it's not an arch. We see an arch in the sky. We say, that's a rainbow. This wasn't that kind of rainbow. 
This wasn't an arch rainbow. This was a circle rainbow, and the circle was circling the throne. If this is the throne, it was encircling the throne. That word rainbow there can also be translated halo. There's a halo that surrounds this throne. Look like emerald. What does that mean, emerald? Green. Well, it's a green. Well, that's a literal green. What does it, maybe, but what does it mean? It means it was shiny like a stone. There was some sort of magnificence there around this stone. And uh, do we have any pictures of something like that in the Bible? A rainbow? Emerald? Well, this is not Noah's rainbow. Remember God gave a rainbow after the flood? Put it up in the sky, didn't he? This rainbow isn't in the sky. What did that rainbow in the sky mean? It wasn't going to judge anymore, remember that? That was a rainbow of mercy. That's not what this rainbow is like. This rainbow he sees in heaven, and it's a circle like a halo. Do we see any rainbow like that? Well, we do. I'm going to show you one place here. I want you to look over at Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel, when you get to Ezekiel, you see that the book opens with Ezekiel having a vision. Very similar to John. Ezekiel, you know where that is? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And when you get to Ezekiel, find chapter 1. And look at verse 1. Ezekiel 1 and verse 1. And this is how he describes his vision of God. He says, And it came to pass in the thirteenth year, the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, that I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened, sounds like John, doesn't it? And I saw visions of God. He has a vision of God. And he describes this vision, and the way he describes it, right at the end of that same chapter, he says, he talks about what God looked like, and he says, like the appearance, verse 28, of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. And so was the appearance of the brightness, look at this, around it, all around it. What was this? This was the appearance of the likeness of the what? The glory of God. You see that? So this rainbow around the throne is God's glory. So, why is that important? It's important because when John has the vision and he uses these words, his audience thinks back to Ezekiel's vision. And they're saying, oh, he's talking about the glory of God. So that's what that is, the glory of God. It's magnificent. So what about these elders in verse 4? 24 elders, and on the throne I saw the 24 elders sitting And look what they had on. Verse 4. They were clothed in white robes. They were clothed in white robes. Have we ever seen white linen, white robes, white garments before? In chapters 2 and 3? What was that all about? Anybody remember? Yeah, that was the people, the believers in chapters 2 and 3 
who were told to remain faithful, Jesus said, if you overcome, if you're victorious and you do remain faithful, and you stop these shenanigans to keep your job, and you just trust me, even if it costs you your life, I will clothe you in white garments. So here we have people in white garments. So that uh, may represent people that have been faithful. We're not certain, but that's a possibility. And then he says also, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Uh, victor's crowns. These are overcomers. We saw that back in chapter 2 and verse 10. That Christ said, if he that overcomes, he's a victorious in this life, doesn't cave in, doesn't compromise with culture, I'll put on them a crown, a crown of gold. And so here we see these 24 people sitting on the throne with white robes, with crowns on their heads. Sounds to me like overcomers. Now who are the 24? Well, we're not certain, but we do know from Revelation 21 that the New Jerusalem, which comes all the way at the end when God sets up His kingdom, that in the city of the New Jerusalem there are 12 gates, each representing a tribe of Israel. And there are 12 foundation stones, each representing an apostle. 12 and 12 make 24. It could mean that we're not certain. There's a lot of speculation. Why do we have to speculate on some of these things? Why do you think that? <laughs> because they're symbols. <laughs> That's why. And if we can't really nail it down, we're having to speculate. But a good speculation, a good guess, is that these 24 people represent the Old Testament saints that remain faithful, Israel, and the New Testament saints that remain faithful and were overcomers. And they too surround the throne and they are ruling with the one on the throne. So, most likely these are human beings. Now the scene shifts a little bit. Look at verse 5. It says, and from the throne. So you had somebody who was on the throne, you had what was around the throne. Now from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Now, if you were a Jew, what did that sound like to you? Don't sound like Mount Sinai, doesn't it? When God gave the Ten Commandments, lightnings, fun thunders, roars. Yeah. Uh, it's coming from the throne. So imagine all these <coughs> flashes. See, uh, Here's the throne that he sees, somebody sitting on it, and right from the throne come all these flashings, come out like this. Like all these you know, shots coming out like this. It's like a light show. And that's what he sees. And that certainly in, in Exodus, when God gave the commandments and there were the lightnings and thundering, that spoke about the fear of God and the severity of God. And the people were scared to death and they were afraid to come near the mountain. God said, Moses, only you come up to the mountain. Because the people were afraid of God because he's a holy, he's a just God. Maybe that's what he sees on the throne. And then he says, I saw seven lamps in verse 5. Literally, I saw seven torches that were burning. Look at the, their proximity to the throne. Burning before the throne. Now, if we say the throne is where God's presence is, and it's surrounded by a halo, God's magnificence, is all around it and shooting out, and there are 
24 faithful people around it representing the faithful Jews and Christians of the ages. Then in front of that throne, in front of God's presence, there were seven lamps fired. Now, I try to figure this thing out. I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, we've got rainbows, we've got 24 people, we've got encircling the throne, and seven lamps. So what's these seven lamps? Suddenly I think, well, if you would go into the temple, if you go into the tabernacle, and you went to the Holy of Holies, that's where God's presence was. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. And then... In the inner court, before God's presence, outside the veil, there were there was a menorah there, wasn't there? There was a lampstand, seven-fold lampstand, and I think that this is probably what John is seeing, and maybe it represents something like that. If it does, guess what John's looking at when he looks at heaven? He's looking like at the tabernacle in heaven. Do you remember when God told Moses to build a tabernacle? Remember what he said? How Moses, what Moses was the pattern of the tabernacle on earth from? What was it? He said, you take and you pattern that tabernacle on earth from that tabernacle that's in heaven. Here's what I want it to look like. And in front of the veil, I want the seven stand menorah. And then he says... And there were seven spirits of God, which we saw back in an earlier chapter, which probably means God's manifestation, God's full manifestation. And before the throne, what else is there before the throne? Was a sea of glass like crystal. Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. Now here's where things I think get a little interesting. This sea of glass like crystal is a reference to the labor you went into the tabernacle in the outer court, the first thing the high priest came to was a bowl called a labor. What did they do with that labor? Labor was filled with water. And they would wash their hands and their feet before they proceed further into that earthly tabernacle. And uh, this, I believe, is a labor. A sea of glass. It's called a sea of glass in verse, like crystal in verse 6 for a reason. I want to show it to you. I want you to look back at 1 Kings. I want you to look at Solomon's tabernacle, or Solomon's temple, rather. 1 Kings chapter 7. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 7. Now, Solomon is, is building his tabernacle. That's what chapter 7 is about. And it tells you the craftsmen were that worked on that temple in chapter 7. It talks about pillars in the temple in verse 15 of chapter 7. And then, in chapter 7 and verse 23, it says this. 1 Kings 7.23 And then, he made a sea. Look at that, a sea. Of cast bronze. Ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits. And a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. So here, when Solomon builds his temple, he makes a sea 
which was a laver. It's called a sea because what's in the laver? Water. And he makes that sea of brass. And he called it basically a sea. A sea of brass or a sea of crystal, whatever you want to call it. And it's a place where the priests washed their hands. Now when Moses, many years before, built his tabernacle, now Solomon's building a temple. Years before when Moses built his tabernacle, here's what the scripture says about this labor. It said he made a bronze labor. This is a, you just might want to jot down the reference, Exodus 38. He made a bronze labor from bronze mirrors that were donated by the women. He made a bronze labor from bronze mirrors that were donated by the women. That's why it's called a sea of glass. Because it was made from bronze mirrors. Not glass like you think of glass. We're talking about a looking glass. What's a looking glass? A mirror. But this mirror, this looking glass, was made out of bronze. Because the priest could look in it and his reflection, you could see his reflection in the bronze. And in it was water. And so it's called a sea of bronze. And that's what John sees when he looks up into heaven. He sees a laver. So what John is describing, to my satisfaction, is he's got a glimpse into God's presence and he sees this heavenly tabernacle or this heavenly temple scene. Now, is there literally a tabernacle up there with an inner court and an outer court and labor? No, I don't think it's all symbolic. But what he's saying is this, what I saw, was where God lives. That's the point that you need to understand. Don't get so you know, caught up in all the details. Look back at Revelation chapter 4 and look what he says. Before the throne was a sea of glass. That's the labor where the priest washed his hands. Get have a pure hands and a pure heart like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four living creatures. Zoe. Living creatures. Ones who are alive. Look how they're described. Full of eyes in front and back. Now they're protecting the throne. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, I want you to notice several things about these living creatures. <clears throat> now, most likely these living creatures, based on Old Testament passages, are angels. So he not only sees humans around the throne... But in the midst of the throne and around the throne, he sees these, what he calls, living ones. Probably angels. Now I want you to notice several things about them. Most likely they're protecting the throne. But if you look at this, the thing that really stands out in verse 6 is their eyes. Do you see that? They're full of eyes in the front and of the back. In the back. That means they're watching things. Nothing escapes their notice. They look at every area, always 
on the lookout. They are watchers with angels with eyes in front and in back. That's why I know some of our mothers were angels. Do you know that? Because they had eyes in the back of their head. Was your mother like that? My mother was an angel. So, anyway. Now, now look at their faces. Now look at their faces. Lion, calf, man, eagle. Each face looking in a different direction. Like that. Now what do these faces mean? Did he really see angels? And the angel had a face of a lion. Well, in his vision he did. But do angels really have faces like that? No. But in his vision they did. So what does this signify? Well, there's all kinds of speculation. And most commentators link it to the zodiac. Because in Rome, Rome believed that the constellations controlled the universe. They believed that the stars controlled the affairs of Earth. And behind every star, they believed there was a god, a Roman god or a deity. And those deities controlled the Earth, and Rome carried out their bidding. And so, the lion, there was a star, or a constellation of the lion, and we call that, for you astrology buffs, what? Leo. Leo. That's right. So, see, I knew that all you people were this. And the, and, the, and the bull was called Taurus, right? And what else do we have? Scorpio, the human, and the eagle, Pegasus. So, that would be the explanation. Um, and if that's the case, then what John sees is that, no, uh, those deities and those constellations that Rome looked to don't control the earth. God's angels control the earth. They are his message. That's an explanation. But I'm going to go with something else. There's a little known fact uh, that when you look back into the Old Testament, you discover that when Israel pitched her tabernacle, when God told the Jews to stop and pitch the tabernacle, that the Jews set up their tents around the tabernacle. So you had the tabernacle right here, and that's where God's presence was. And then three tribes pitched their tents on one side, and three on the other side, and three tribes on the other side, and others on the other side. And so God dwelt in the midst of his people. And most people don't realize is that north, north of the tabernacle, north of God's presence, right in the center, north, the tribe of Judah pitched their tents, and that's where they lived, the lion. And then to the east, Ephraim pitched their tents. And they were symbolized by the oxen. Every tribe, when they pitched their tents, put down a banner, a standard. You know what that is, a flag. And on the flag, there was a symbol. And on the, the flag of Judah was the symbol of the lion. And that's where they did. They pitched theirs to the north. And over here, Ephraim pitched his tent and put his banner up. There was a banner of the oxen. And then Reuben, to the south, pitched his tent, their tents, and they put up their banner. And on their banner was a picture of a man. And then over to the other side, the tribe of Dan pitched their tents, and that's where they lived when the tabernacle stopped. People stopped and the tabernacle was set up 
And the picture on their banner was a picture of an eagle. And that's the same picture that John sees when he gets into heaven. And he looks, and what he sees is all, he sees every, all these things surrounding the throne. All these things surrounding the throne. Angels, humans, God's glory, and then right in the middle, God. Right in the middle, God. God dwelt in the middle of his people. Now, he says in verse 8, the four living creatures, each had six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now, if I said, hey, they had six wings, what would that tell you if you were Jewish? What are these living creatures? If you knew Isaiah chapter 6, you know that these are seraphim. Do you remember Isaiah? What did Isaiah say? He said, I beheld the Lord. Hey, you mean Isaiah had a vision of heaven just like this? Yeah. Ezekiel? Yeah. John? Yeah. I beheld the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And his train filled the what? The temple. And what does he see? He sees these seraphim around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy. You're familiar with that passage? Isaiah 6? And they had six wings. And so when John says, And I saw these living creatures, they had six wings. Guess what he's describing? Seraphim. They do not rest day or night. They say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Some people say that represents the Trinity. I don't think it does. Uh, in Old Testament literature, at least, <clears throat> I think in New Testament as well, repetition is, is for emphasis. They're emphasizing the nature of God. They're saying, He's holy! He's holy! He's holy! So it says three times. Couldn't that be the Trinity? No, because some Greek manuscripts have holy, holy, holy mentioned nine times. Nine times. I think it's just emphasis. Emphasizing God's nature. Holy, 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 they identify God as Lord God Almighty. El Shaddai. The all-powerful one. Shad means breast. The one who sustains us. He's the one who's holy. We are attributing holiness to the one who sustains us, God Almighty. Who do the Romans think sustained them? Yes, Caesar. And their God. Who was. Always existed. Who is. And is to come. Who was. Before anything else existed. He existed. He was the first. Who is. Who is to come. He's the eternal one. And so they are attributing glory to him and holiness to him. Verse 9 says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. This is all political language. This is totally, 100%. 
political language. Because those words in verse 9, glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, are the same words the Romans used for Caesar. When you came in the presence of Caesar, guess what you said? Glory! Honor! You're worthy of worship! Thanksgiving! We're grateful for all the benefits that flow from your throne that you give us. You sustain us. You take care of us. And whenever Caesar came, marched into a town, everybody went, Honor! Glory! Thanksgiving! Oh, great Lord, our God, Caesar! And John says, When I looked in heaven, now let me give you from, from an earthly perspective, Caesar gets that. But from a heavenly perspective, who's getting it? God. And remember, he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor. And they are on the verge of thanking Caesar for taking care of their needs and sustaining them. And they belong to these unions and these guilds and they're eating these, this food that's provided for them. And They're on the verge. And he says, don't be tempted to do that. Let me tell you what you should be doing. And he pulls back heaven. And he says, when I got caught up into heaven, I saw who got the glory. You need to remain faithful to the end. Anybody that denies Christ says Caesar's Lord, he will deny but anyone that confesses Christ doesn't give in. Victorious. Overcomer. Him I will proclaim to my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, so they bowed down and they worshipped him. And that we know that on earth that's what they did when they came into Caesar's presence. What did they do? They bowed down and they worshipped him. And he says then at the end of verse 10, they cast their crowns before his throne. Well, what do they do on earth? Caesar would walk in, he'd conquer a country, and guess what that king would do? Bow down and throw his crown before Caesar. He says, my crown is your crown, my country is your country. But here in heaven they are bowing down. And this was casting your crowns before the throne was in a sense saying, I'm going to be loyal to you. All the kings of the earth, whether it was King Herod or somebody else, all those kings had bowed down and had pledged their loyalty to Caesar. In a sense, they cast their crowns before his feet. So we see where their loyalty is. He says, don't give your loyalty to Caesar, in a sense. And here in heaven, they say, they cast their thrones before the throne, and they say, you are worthy. That's imperial language. That's the language of the Roman Empire. You are worthy, O Lord. Hey, is that what they say to Caesar? Yes. To receive glory and honor and power. Yes, that's what they say. But no, it's only God that should get it. Why should only God get it? Why should Caesar not get it? Why God? Because God did what? Created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. See, God didn't have to create anything, but he wanted to create. He created for his pleasure. He created us for his pleasure. That's why we owe God our honor. So when we see things from a divine perspective, things look a little different. This is where we should be giving our allegiance. 
And one day that's where we will be. If we overcome on earth. But if you deny Christ in this lifetime, and you bow the knee like they do through chapter 6 through 19, just to survive, just to buy a loaf of bread to take the number of Caesar and identify yourself with him, then you will not experience this. You will be deprived of this. And so, when we get ahead, as John does in chapter 5, he will tell us that he sees a scroll, which is going to tell what's going to happen in the near future. And he wants to know. He says, what's all this about? And then Christ opens the scroll and reveals the future to John, which he will then convey on to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And that's what we'll pick up next week at Revelation chapter 5. Father, help us not to compromise for economic gain, for survival, but to look to you, El Shaddai, our sustainer, the Almighty One, the One who's created, created us for your pleasure. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be overcomers. Help us to realize, Lord, that right now, while we're making all kinds of compromising decisions, in heaven you're being worshipped. And if our citizenship is in heaven, if this is, if we claim allegiance to you, we should be doing that, not this. Help us, Lord, to get a heavenly and divine perspective. Get our eyes off this earth and off our temporal situation. That, uh, and help us to remain faithful to you. Lord, realizing that while we're on this earth, we don't have to bow the knee to anybody in order to live. If we seek first the kingdom of God, we seek your righteousness, you'll add everything, because you are El Shaddai, you are our great sustainer. Help us to learn this lesson. Right, thank you for it.